Well, tonight we're going to be talking about, is the, there we go, we're going to be talking about keeping perspective in trials and pain, and uh, then we're going to go on to talk about the, the words that we say and how those can be hurtful at times and how to deal with that kind of suffering, and then we're going to be finishing up talking about resolving conflict biblically as well. Um, let's go ahead and pray again, okay? <laughs> Can't pray too much. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for your word. We know your word is always good, and we, come, we always come to it with high expectations, Lord, that you are going to speak to our hearts. And tonight, we come again with high expectations to receive from you, Father. Father, you know what each person in this room is dealing with, has dealt with, will deal with. And um, we pray, Father, that these words of encouragement tonight will guide and um, be, serve as encouragement and direction for them and for all of us, Lord, in women's ministry here at Calvary Chapel Surprise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Well, difficult circumstances, they come with a little gift. <laughs> difficult circumstances come with a divine purpose. Why is this true? Well, first of all, we know that difficult circumstances come to us with opportunity to learn. They come to us with an opportunity to gain knowledge, understanding, and even wisdom through those difficult experiences that we encounter. And secondly, we draw closer to Jesus through these difficult times in our lives. We all know this because we've all been there. And who did the trials benefit? Well, clearly, based on what I just said, if all of that is true, then we gain. When we suffer and we have pain, we benefit. But the body of Christ also benefits from our suffering, from your suffering, from my suffering, from one another's suffering. The body of Christ is integrally connected to each other, right? And when one part of the body hurts, another part of the body feels that, and there's a reaction, and there's a response, and, and that's the way it works. It's a, it's a moving, living, breathing organism. And so there's benefit for all of us when we suffer. And we don't really think about it that way, do we? Mm -mm. We think about Oh, you know, it's, this is a trial, and th it's because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good, and we forget the last time that we might have gone through something difficult. And we forget all that we learned through that experience, how we grew, drew closer to the Lord. But as we share our pain and our needs with others, it increases compassion in the body of Christ and opportunities for service and sharing Christ's love brings healing. The word perspective, as we talk about perspective on pain, is defined as the definition to look through. Keep that in mind as we go on. It includes a particular attitude, the, a point of view, in interpretation, pain can cause us to lose our perspective, our right vision, as if we were wearing someone else's prescription glasses. Sometimes I'll pick up my husband's 
glasses that look like a pair that I have, and I'll put those on, and whoa, the room is spinning, and everything's fuzzy, and everything's distorted all of a sudden. And, and that's how it is when we go through pain. It is difficult to get the right attitude about painful situations right away, to get, to get perspective, <laughs> to, get, to get it into focus, right? It seems to require time. It seems to require maturity. But mature perspectives, which we're all after, we all desire after that, in life take time to develop. And we need patience with one another because we're not all in the same place at the same time. Another reason is that pain just simply hurts. That is primarily why it's so difficult. It just hurts. And, and, and sometimes very, very deeply. So therefore, what's our natural response? We want to avoid it. You know? Perspective is often a process. We recognize that we can't wait for that pain to pass. And so sometimes we just do nothing. We just are frozen by it. We're paralyzed by the pain. And we say, I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let this too shall pass. <laughs> but usually we need to take action steps. And that includes, that takes us to our next item here, and that is perseverance. We have to persevere through the pain. We cannot just stop and sit and wait. We have, to, we have to be actively involved in that process in our lives in order to gain something from it, in order to learn something from it, in order to grow through it, and for it to be productive at all in our lives. We have to persevere. And others around you are watching you as you persevere through your pain. They're encouraged as you put one foot in front of the other holding on to the hands of those near to you. One of the benefits of, of trials and, and pain is when a, a result that comes from them, and that is peace. But peace is also, to me, a bit of an action verb. We have to accept the peace. If peace is just presented to us and we do nothing with it, it does nothing. Peace is active. Peace is, is something to be received and accepted and brought in and rejoiced over. We, we know in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, it's, there is a promise there. And it's said over and over and over again, I think three or four times in that short scripture, um, chapter four, verses six through nine, it says, my peace, I will give you. When you do this, I will give you peace. When you do that, I will give you peace. So peace then and pain coexist. They must coexist. Is that true? I want you to think about that. Peace and pain can coexist in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. We don't just simply have to be in the pain. We can be in the pain with peace. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Many of you have experienced that, as have I. And as ministers, we get the privilege 
to come alongside and grasp the suffering of others. Before, we must do that as, as a matter of fact. We must come alongside them and, and walk with them actively, actively persevering with them. And we must do that before we can really be of, of much help. We just simply have to listen. We have to come alongside, and we'll talk more about that later. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. There is a privilege in entering into the sufferings of Christ, our own or others, as we come alongside those who are at various different places and different stages of pain in their lives. They either have had it, they're either having it, or they will have it, okay? So we embrace one another in this human experience as we come alongside. And as we do, we realize what Diane Langberg, uh, I I will say a a mentor and a a person I have known for many, many years and an excellent trauma counselor has written in this book. She says, as those who minister to people in the churches and communities and the campuses of this country, you have, by virtue of your calling, been invited to enter into atrocity in the name of Jesus Christ. You thought that women's ministry was just going to be all fun and games, huh? (laughs) Such an invitation is really nothing other than a call to follow in the footsteps of our Lord, who entered into the terrible atrocity of this fallen world and endured the unspeakable. He who did so for our sake has called us, has called us to do the same for those who are suffering. He came in a body of flesh to walk among us in our darkness, our fear, and our atrocities. He who now stands at the right hand of the Father interceding still has a body here on earth, and we are that body of flesh, still caught out of love and obedience to the Father to walk among others in their darkness their fears and atrocities in such a way that explains the Father to others. The natural response response to pain is fear. Fear is anxiety. And so it will sometimes manifest itself that way. So we address the fear in the pain of others, and we're confronted with our own fears at the same time. Sometimes we avoid what hurts in ourselves and in others. Sometimes we don't want to get too emotionally, physically, or spiritually close to someone else because it reminds us too much of some pain in our own lives or something that we're avoiding, and we step back. So if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always step up to comfort others. Sometimes we step back. And we miss a blessing in doing so. 
Some don't even want to get close. Those who are suffering through their, in their own pain, they don't even want to share that with others because there may be shame involved. It's too difficult to talk about. But as we come alongside and we join them, we gain a huge, abundant blessing. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't go around looking for pain so we can have a blessing. Oh, tell me your pain so I can be blessed today. No, that's ridiculous. But when we have courage to step in and up to that sacred place in another person's life, we know that blessing. We have that blessing and we experience that blessing. Diane goes on to say, you and I will live and work among the tombs according to our personal relationship with Christ. The degree to which we know and truly follow this scarred Savior will determine the degree to which we will be able to live and work among the tombs in a way that resembles him. The call to share in the fellowship of his sufferings is preceded by the call to worship. The call to truly know him as he is. You and I cannot face things as they actually are in this dark world without getting twisted unless we do so from the place of worship. And that is for two reasons. First, unless we see him who is high and lifted up, exalted on the throne and worthy of all honor, power, and glory, the reality of things as they are will efface our faith, throw us into cynicism, and put us into a panic. You cannot face the rubble of the World Trade Center, the rape of a child, the mass murder of people, or the destruction of an earthquake without devastation to your own soul. And that is without worship of the Lamb who sits on the throne. Second, unless we begin from this place of worship, we will not have power to descend. Worship always leads to repentance. And we cannot walk among the traumatized and the suffering with humility and patience, compassion and comfort in a way that honors the man of sorrows until we have truly seen ourselves before him. Isaiah did not hear the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send until his sin was atoned for. Without that, we will respond with pride and superiority, impatient with people that are not better yet, intolerant of their repetitions and prolonged fear. Worship must come first, because through the, though the earth shake and the mountains fall into the sea, God is on his throne and is our eternal refuge. Worship must come first, or we will exalt ourselves and think that the drab drudgery of the rubble is not meant for us. If you would walk well among those who are suffering, then begin on your knees, worshiping God, the God who must permeate your being if you are to bring life to dead places. So to prepare ourselves for this ministry, to enter into the sacred place, the sacred honor of ministering with other women, we must prepare ourselves and make certain that we are um, experience a, a life of communion with the Lord and, a, and have a heart of worship with him. Now, to successfully understand God's divine purpose in pain and gain that perspective that we're desperately needing and to help others seek after that, there's some things that are required of us beyond the preparation for example, it's like 
Childbirth, this is not, it's like childbirth. This is not a passive process. <laughs> childbirth is not passive. It's a very active process. And you're, you're involved in it. Baby just doesn't pop out, at least not for most of us. <laughs> I've heard of that a few times, but <laughs> it's not the norm. God is doing something bigger and deeper through the tool of our pain. And this requires courage. Courage for what exactly? Well, let's take a look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua was shaking in his boots. He had been to the promised land. He knew what was over there. He spied it out, okay? He saw the giants in the land, and he saw the danger that, that he was moving toward. And he, this, this soldier, this very strong soldier, this, this person who had been raised in to be a military soldier, was shaking in his boots. I gain a lot of comfort in that. Do you? I do. I, I think, wow, if he was scared, if he was frightened, if he was anxious, and God had to say to him three times, be strong and courageous. Come on, guy, you can do this. Come on. And remind him of his purpose, for you shall give these people possession of this land. He is, he is reminding him of the purpose set before him. You see, his fear was probably distorting the way he was thinking. You know, he, his, his eyes, his perspective were on what was over there. And he was frozen, perhaps. And God again says, only be strong and very courageous, and then gives more instruction. And then later says, I commanded you. Okay, now he really has Joshua's attention, okay? Because a soldier listens to that language. Okay, yes, all right, got, got it together. Yeah, I'm, I'm back on track, Lord, got it, let's go. <laughs> okay, so it requires courage of us too. It requires courage when you step into that, that, that painful place with another person. Because you have to overcome some of your own fears of, I don't know what to do, or this really hurts. Some women tell me they've gone home and cried after having been with someone who's, who they've talked to for a long time about their pain. It, it costs us something. But the other is that we need courage for another reason, and that is to surrender, to, to, to surrender and let go of that fear to release it, and to trust God. Interestingly, God spoke directly to the fear. 
Fear is a powerful emotion. It can hijack our common sense at times. It can hijack our thinking. And it has the potential even to handicap our faith. In trials, who or what are we trusting in? This is revealed to us very quickly as we've all been there, trusting in our own strength, knowledge, our own patience, our own endurance, our own talents, our own experience, our own ability. So we're faced with that question, who or what are we trusting in? When we or others are in pain, we point them to the one who provides the way, and we are not that. When it seems there is no way and they're lost, we have to remember that God does already know their situation. Remember that the trial has a lesson in it. The trial has a divine purpose in it, that God will somehow, some way work this trial, this pain, and this suffering for good in our lives or in the life of someone else, for others, for the body of Christ. So whose lesson is it? Sometimes it's the other person's lesson. Sometimes when it comes to conflict, it's not always yours. Sometimes it's mine. But most of the time, it's both. Suffering is purposeful. How can we say this? Because we have had the privilege of seeing Christ work in and through our suffering. And that's the testimony of his presence of his grace and his love in this life. The variations of suffering in this room are, are numerous. I can say there, there clearly are experiences in this room of disease, those who have lost loved ones, lost by divorce, betrayal, traumas of various kinds. We aren't immune to suffering. But with honest evaluation and soul-searching, we are led through our suffering to repentance and confession. And we consider for a moment what we have gathered through our own personal experience with suffering. Think for a minute what you have experienced, what you have gained, what you have learned through your own personal experience with suffering and pain. Was it compassion for others? Was it the ability to tolerate distress and learn true patience? Was it to really learn to love others in the way that Jesus meant you to? Did you learn to stop trying to control the outcome? Did you learn that you have false expectations of yourself and others? Did you learn that fear is from the pit of hell and can tie you up in knots? And that's why we have 365 fear knots in the Bible, one for every day of the year. Fear N-O-T's, not K-N-O-T's. <laughs> so suffering is purposeful. And trials, as they're purposeful, they change us. They transform us. Gail Mays, in her booklet on Principles for Women in Leadership, says that God is doing something in this trial that only this trial can accomplish. And so think about that with me. Ask yourself, do I need changing? Here's a little dialogue with God. 
well, after all, God, wasn't I good enough just the way I was? I mean, why do I need changing anyway, God? I, I thought I was made in your image. Doesn't that mean that I'm perfect just the way I am? And God says, I am doing a new thing. Will you not see it? See it. Well, I won't see it if I'm wearing someone else's glasses. And my perspective is all fuzzy and distorted. But Lord, I mean, really, I shop at thrift stores already, Lord, and I'm really good with the used stuff. I really don't need anything new, not really. And the Lord says, I need you new again. I need you to be changed, transformed, renewed, and restored. I need, to, I need you to see me. Because now you see through a mirror dimly. And that's for sure. And then we continue to complain and we don't like his teaching methods and we grumble through the pain and yet all the time he is just doing what he said he would do in the first place, which is to bring us to himself, to make us more like him. He is answering our prayers. He is answering our prayers to make us more holy. So the question becomes then, am I willing to accept this assignment? Am I willing to do the homework? Am I willing to do the heart work to see God's purposes in this difficulty come to fruition in my life? Where's the fruit? I want the fruit, but am I willing to do the hard work that it takes to get there? Am I willing to do the heart work and the homework? Ezekiel 36. These verses speak of the new covenant, of course, with Israel at the second coming of Christ. But I find another meaning here for myself as well. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, capital M, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. How does the Lord accomplish this kind of transformation in us? How does the Lord accomplish this? This outcome, a new heart, a soft heart, a changed heart, a changed life. If not through trials, if not through the suffering. Sufferings are purposeful. How can we help our friends? How can we help our sisters in the Lord? as they're going through difficulties, as women in ministry together, we can listen first. Two ears, one mouth. I often say when we listen, we have to listen with a third ear. I need three. I don't know about you. <laughs> and that third ear is, comes in from here. I have to listen with my heart, with a heart of discernment to the Lord. I have to be on the same wavelength. I have to be listening for his still small voice, his wisdom to me as he uses me as a conduit to communicate something to the person sitting in front of me. I'm the conduit, but he can do it. Little play on words. I forgot that. Okay. Point others to dependency on Christ, not on us, but always back to him. 
Encourage them to have a plan for individual prayer time. And us too. This is critical. If we're going to be ministers, we have to have this quiet time with the Lord, this one-on-one fellowship, this time to commune. Encourage them to stay in the word. Be consistent. Pray that she or I will be conformed to the image of Christ through this trial. If you wonder how to pray, you wonder what to say, you pray that this person in front of you will be conformed to the image of Christ. Through this trial, we don't know what God's purpose is, and we shouldn't even be trying to guess. That's between him and them. But he's up to something good, I can tell you that. I love to say God is always up to something good. I know he is, even though it hurts. Pray that she will see her identity in Christ, that her identity in Christ is not the trial or the pain or the suffering, that her identity in Christ is not the trial, okay? Some, some people will identify themselves as the crisis. Well, um, hi, nice to meet you. I'm depression. <laughs> hi, good to meet you. I'm a panic attack, you know? Nice to meet you. I'm a divorcee. You know, that's not what we do. I'm a widow. That's not what we do. We, our identity in Christ is not the experience of pain and suffering that we have been through. We have to separate that out. But it's very easy to do, isn't it? Very easy to do. Very easy to take on the identity of the pain and the suffering. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, you are a daughter of the king. You are a child of God. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. You are his. He says, when you go through the water, you will not drown. When you go through the fire, you will not be burned. I I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. I have redeemed you and called you by name. You are mine. You, You are mine. I've got you, kid. Okay? I've got you. And he's not going to let you go. So point the way. I think what we're going to do now is we're just going to take a little break. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking more about um, pain through words. All right. Okay. We're going to be talking now about about words, words, how pain is evidenced through words in our lives. When we speak of pain, we have to look at the other side of pain, too. We have to look at the offender side. Specifically, we're going to reflect on the pain that harmful words can bring. Words said in the wrong spirit just wound. And and they create rejection. Many people have a very serious problem. We need to understand and be sensitive to this. They have a very serious problem with rejection. And with rejecting words. It's one of those issues in life that starts in the sandbox. (laughs) And there are many people that never develop skills to really be able to deal well with rejection. It leads to a lot of other problems. And so there's great sensitivity. We have to be careful with joking around, with teasing, um, and getting too personal with some of those jokes because we're not really certain about how that will be received. 
Just to bear in mind that God created us for connection, not disconnection, which is the result of rejecting words, disconnecting, right? But God's, God's goal, God's plan is creating us for connection. This is why conflict is such a big problem, because it isn't God's design. God didn't create us for disconnection, and that's why it feels so bad on the inside. Conflict just turns us inside out like a glove, right? We just feel like, ugh, something's just not right. We feel sort of sick emotionally when we're in conflict with someone. It's because that's the Holy Spirit in us reminding us, this isn't what I made you for. This isn't, this isn't my desire. This isn't my plan. My plan is for connection, not disconnection. As we, as we work with others, we want to always re be reminded to pray before we speak. We can pray silently, just continuously, a, a conversation with the Lord. One of the things I like to do is shoot up stat prayers. Stat means right now. It's a, it's a medical term. It means now, immediately, and it's, it's one of those help prayers just praying continuously through the situation, having that mindset of, okay, Lord, help me hear, help me listen, give me words, give me wisdom. Be respectful with our request to help, to ask and request for help, asking others to, to serve or to be available. We have to be careful not to demand and not to insist but to be sensitive about how we ask for help in the ministry. As a steward of information, I like to use that terminology, we're, we're stewards of information as others share their hearts with us. And this means that private or personal pain that others have shared with you, you now become a guard for that information because it's precious to someone. Ask permission first before sharing. Hey, can I share this with so-and-so? Don't just assume that that's okay because they're in the church or they're a leader in women's ministry, so it's okay that they know. No. Ask permission. Be respectful of the precious nature of that information. And then we also want to stop and we want to think about what is the minimum necessary. We want to say, if I'm going to share this information, what really is necessary to share? Um, Amy Carmichael, some of you might know of her. Amy Carmichael is a, a Christian writer. Um, she had written a book at w one time and, and coined the term TNK. It means, is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? TNK. And it's a really great thing to keep in mind. And I think the word necessary really comes out at me there because something can be true, but is it really necessary to share that just because it's true? Okay. N not, not really. Re the necessary really makes us stop and think. So we can get ourselves in really hot water if we... Um, if we share more than the minimum necessary, 
In healthcare, we have that term, minimum necessary. That's where that comes from, your HIPAA guidelines, right? You're, we're, we're all protected in that way. So we want to re- be very respectful to others about just sharing what's necessary. Proverbs 26, 17 says, uh, like one who takes the dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. This scripture reveals that gossip is a great sin in God's sight. And Proverbs 13, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. This is, these are guidelines. These are, this is wisdom. Don't be a talebearer, okay? Conceal, conceal uh, what is not necessary to share. Now, the exception to this, of course, is safety. If someone is in danger, if someone is, um, if someone is going to harm themselves or harm someone else, obviously, that's very, very important to bring up to your leadership and to someone in, in an authority authority role who can help you with that. We wouldn't want you to carry that as a burden and say and think to yourself, well, I just can't share this because it's a secret and I don't want to divulge confidentiality or confidential information. No, when it comes to safety, all bets are off. Okay. Safety first. Proverbs 16.2 says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And Proverbs 21.2, very similar, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. We must um, be careful about our motives in sharing. As I said earlier, we have to check our hearts. How does the heart condition become so affected, though? so as to speak words that potentially harm someone else. It often comes from how we allow ourselves to think. Our thoughts, the thoughts we entertain in our minds, our words are the result, the process. We have to back that up a little bit, right? Because the process starts with what we think. What are we thinking about that person? What are we thinking in our minds, what are we saying up here? What we think affects how we feel, and that affects what we do. It can be a very dangerous thing if it's not in a, uh, in, in a godly attitude. Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, honorable, right, lovely, and of good repute, and I have those words there in capital for a reason. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. What we think affects how we feel, affects what we do and what we say, what comes out of our mouth. And this is, the, this is part of the root of the harmful words. We often want to focus on the words, but I'm encouraging you today, focus on how you think first, and then maybe those words will never come out of your mouth. Sometimes I'll, I'll take this scripture and I'll turn it around to the opposite of saying what I don't want to be doing, okay? I don't want to focus on what is false. I don't want to focus on what is dishonorable. I don't want to be thinking about what is wrong thinking. I don't want to think unlovely thoughts. 
or thoughts that are not of good repute for the other one, the other person. And I don't want to think about anything that isn't of excellence. I have to measure this. And if, it, if there is anything that is unworthy of praise that's in, that are in my thoughts, I need to check that. So take this to heart. Let this be your guide before you speak, before you use harmful words with before the harmful words do, do the damage. But let's talk about how we resolve conflict. You know, in the church, we are like a family, aren't we? We, we eat together, we play together, we study together, we serve together, um, we worship the Lord together, and we become very close with one another. And... Where there are two or, two or more there are gathered, there will be conflict, right? <laughs> Where two or more are gathered, there will be trouble, all right? So from time to time, there's going to be someone who gets a little bit off sides with somebody else, okay? Somebody who gets offended, all right? So we don't want to contribute to that, but we do want to work toward resolving a conflict or conflicts. A very important principle in resolving conflict is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 through 11.1. Essentially, do it all for the glory of God. Capital A-L-L. Do it all. And that means the conflict too. Do it well. All right? When there is struggle, when difficulties come about, do this well. We want to honor God in everything. We have to think about how do I... How do I honor God in this conflict? Conflict seems to be a dirty word, though, for a lot of people, okay? Inside, it stirs up fear. It stirs up feelings of avoidance. I want to run for the hills. That's my reaction a lot of times if there's conflict. If we're honest, that's true, right? I don't want to deal with that. You deal with it, Sue, <laughs> right? But conflict is really one of those areas that troubles all of us. None of us escape that, and, and no one does it right all the time. So it's a, in my view, it's got to be a shame-free zone, <laughs> okay? We don't do this very well, all right? It takes practice. It really, really takes practice to do this right. We can learn how to do it better. So one thing is for certain, though, if we can keep the right perspective, we can keep the right pair of glasses on, and if we can keep the right attitude about conflict, then we're bound to learn something about it for ourselves. You know, I knew that when I was asked to speak, um, I thought, okay, here we go, lab session. You know, it's going to be my turn. I'm going to have to do a practicum. You know, and sure enough, something came up, and I had to deal with that over the last few weeks. And uh, it wasn't pleasant, you know, it you know, I had to give some, some bad news to someone, and it, it created conflict. Um, and I didn't, I don't think I handled it as well as I could have, you know. Um, I stayed calm and all that, but I could hear the Lord just speaking to me in the process. And, and um, knowing that, okay, I've got to keep, I've got to keep everything right here. That the difficulty I had 
was my heart was really breaking for that person. You know, when you have to be the bearer of bad news to someone that they're not going to um, appreciate very much what you have to say, it, it, you, you can almost feel that that is, that that is difficult for them and you have empathy for them and yet you still have to do the right things, okay? You still have to, have to do what you are called to do. And as a, as a leader and a minister in the church and in your homes. It's interesting to me that Paul viewed conflict in, in three key ways. Number one, he viewed conflict as an opportunity to glorify God. Number two, he viewed conflict as an opportunity to serve other people. And number three, he viewed conflict as an opportunity to grow and to, to be like Christ. And this is how he, he speaks of conflict throughout the New Testament. So, wow, I would say that there's a conflict. There isn't a conflict that we have that we can't learn something from. We can either grow from it. It can be an opportunity to glorify the Lord, or it can be an opportunity to serve another person. There's, there's purpose in conflict. There's purpose in difficulties. It's just how we look at it. It's, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but if you can keep your focus on glorifying God in the midst of it, you'll keep the right, the right perspective on the situation. So I put in an act, and I wanted it to look like life. It was starting to look like life when I started writing it out and putting it together. And then it turned into lifer, and I just had to laugh. I thought, okay, that's me. I am a lifer. I'm a, re, I'm, I'm a remedial student of, of the Lord when it, it comes to dealing with this topic <laughs> because I get opportunities to practice forgiveness over and over and over and over and over again. Right, And I know I'm not unlike you, okay? But we all do. So we are lifers together. Let's look at the first one. The first key is to look to God, to keep the right attitude. Look up. Keep the right attitude of serving others in your heart, an attitude of humility, sincerity, genuine love, and concern for that person. Secondly, the letter I, define the issues. I stands for issues. Define the issues clearly. What is the true source of our disagreement? What is the real issue here? Spend some time to really stop and think what this conflict is really about. Are we arguing about something that really isn't what we're arguing about? <laughs> okay. Is it pow a power struggle? Is it pride? Is it a deeper hurt from the past being scraped open that has nothing to do with the person in front of you, but has everything to do with the person behind you, the history behind you? Okay. F is to state your feelings. State your feelings in the first person pronoun, the letter, the word I. Okay. I feel, I need, instead of you, 
a very basic communication style, a very communication, basic communication skill and conflict resolution, but how easy it is to turn our words from I to you, you know, from, um, from how I feel to blame and shame, you know, you this and you that, and got to keep the, the focus here when we're expressing how we feel about the situation. Another key is listen with your ears. I need three. So two plus one equals three. So listen with your ears. And R is seek to repair. Seek to repair the damage through acknowledging the pain that the other person is suffering. Um, Just acknowledging that this is really difficult. Acknowledge that that you understand that this is really hurting and that this is, is tearing them apart. Confess, confess your sin to one another in that process. Confess what you can. If there's something that, that you have done wrong, take the log out of your own eye and confess that to that individual. I see my part in this, and I want to confess this and, and to you. I understand that I've hurt you. I can see how I've hurt you. So communicate understanding and compassion for the other person's feelings. And you can do this without necessarily always agreeing with another person's position. There may be times when you cannot agree, and that's okay. But you can respect their position. You can respect their views and their feelings. And God may still work on that issue in your life and in their life. I want to talk about glorifying God for a minute, because to glorify God is our highest calling. And to think about in the midst of conflict, how we have an opportunity to show love and kindness through how we we respond to others is truly the definition of glorifying God in the practical. In 1 Peter 2, chapter or verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it, it reminds us that the more Jesus' grace and character are revealed in us, the more God is honored and praised. So we have this opportunity to include him in this process. This isn't just about you and them. This is about you and them and him. Okay, this is a triangle. Romans 8.28 says it's all how we look at it. Conflict can be one of the tools that God uses to make us more Christ-like. It reminds us of our imperfect state, and it allows us to practice love and forgiveness over and over again many times as we, as we have to work through various challenges that may come our way, whether you ask for it or not, various things will happen. But if we keep that attitude of practicing love and forgiveness in the face even of, of, of frustration or even provocation, you know, we will be able to honor the Lord and we'll be able to see God work things, all things for good in the end. God is always up to something good, even in conflict. You have to, we have to get in the mindset of looking for that, of praying for that, that we can see what he's doing. 
and trust that he's up, he's up to something good, that he's doing something good. We often want to say, well, the enemy this and the enemy that. You know, I'm, I'm just not one of those people who sees the enemy behind every bush. <laughs> I'm one of these people that likes to take responsibility for my stuff and likes other people to take responsibility for their stuff. I think that's a pretty biblical way to live. And I don't like to walk in fear of the enemy either, even though I'm, I'm not... Um, unrealistic about his activity in the, in the world. But I do, I do want to emphasize that um, we, we come to the table with, with all that we have to resolve the conflict. We come to the table to make peace. Okay. We're not, we don't come to the table to blame and shame and, and, uh, you know, not take responsibility for the wrongs that we've done. All right, let's talk about steps to reducing conflict in our lives. You know, it's one thing when things happen in your life and you really, uh, you bump into it more or less, okay? We don't always necessarily um, produce conflict, but these are ways to develop a, a habit of reducing conflict the first is to glorify God. I've said that before. Glorify God in all things. Glorify God in the conflict. Getting the log out of our own eye. Matthew 7, 5 is very clear about this. Stop, pause. We all have a pause button, right? All of you, right here. Push the pause button. <laughs> I always tell everybody, we all have a fist. It's not to punch, it's to pause, okay? So slow down. Get the log out of your own eye and consider, consider, your part in this, in this interaction and pray about that. Is there anything? And, and the truth is that most of the time we can find something. Oh, wow, I didn't even realize that I, that I passed you in the hall and didn't even, didn't even notice you. My mind was elsewhere. That's, that's on me. I need to be more sensitive about noticing, okay? We can all, almost always own something, can't we? What do you think about that? Yeah, if we really look, we can own something. God will reveal something to us. Um, consider also overlooking the offense. Ken Sandy, in his book on peacemaking, being peacemakers, talks about the 90-10 rule and that 90% of the time we can overlook an offense if we really stop and think about it. When I came into this uh, uh, concept many years ago now, um, I, I started to utilize it in my own life and challenge myself with the 90-10, and it works. And so I challenge you with the 90-10. 90% of things can be water off the duck's back. Not everything has to be important. Not everything has to be a, a, a big deal that we have to, you know, Make a big deal out of every little thing. Have a, have a little grace, okay? We want the grace, but then sometimes we don't want to give it back, okay? So life will go a lot more uh, easier for us if we could just stop and pause and think, eh, I can let this be water off the duck's back. I can let this one roll. It's not, it's not a major, it's a minor. And give grace, but we do have some criteria that we look at when 
an issue does is the 10%, right? When an issue has to be, really, we have to stop and we really have to consider, okay, this is significant. I do have to deal with this one. So a couple of guidelines here. It's not all the guidelines, but a few to think about. Has the offense seriously dishonored God? All right, think about that. Has it permanently damaged a relationship? Has it hurt other people? Is it hurting the offender? Is it hurting them? They just can't see that at the time. When we seek to restore and and bring uh, conflict to the place of restoration, we we seek to be restored with another. Um, we have to remember too that going to your sister or your brother must be done in the right spirit. Um, if it isn't, it'll be revealed pretty obviously. Uh, the Holy Spirit just is going to make that real clear if someone isn't in the right spirit. And as I said earlier, sometimes a conflict is about a much deeper issue. It isn't the actual issue that you're arguing about. So really, really pray, really stop and consider what's going on deep within. I say below sea level, all right? Sometimes it's conflict gets stirred up over things like feeling judged by another person. Well, what's the issue behind that? What's the sensitivity about feeling judged or criticized or rejected? Perhaps there's something the Lord wants you to see and wants to heal in you and deal with. And so be open to that. With reconciliation, we, we want to recognize that first and foremost, it's possible, it's only possible, because God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, Jesus. And how do we respond to that action, to that unmerited grace in our lives? How do we respond in terms of reciprocating that to others? that grace, that forgiveness. Well, we often, unfortunately, we qualify our forgiveness. Well, I'll forgive you, but I just don't want to ever talk to you again. <laughs> you know, we make a lot of excuses. We put a lot of conditions on our forgiveness. And that isn't going to truly re- uh, lead to a place of reconciliation in peace. It's still going, it's, it's going to leave things unsettled. So we really want to think about the conditions that we place on forgiveness and remember that Jesus doesn't place conditions on us when it comes to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not excusing a wrong behavior either, all right? It's it's a willful decision to freely pardon the offender. It includes a commitment to not talk to others about the incident, okay? So when we freely forgive, we don't go and tell others about what they did, what they did to harm us and keep that going, all right? It's over, it's over. 
So those are some thoughts about reconciliation. As, as we close here, I just want to um, have you take a look at your uh, handout. Does everybody have one? Everybody have a handout for the questions tonight? No? A few others? We'll get you some. All right. There are about five questions here, and you'll have plenty of time to work through these. We've got about 25 minutes left. And then on the back of your page, I put together a few questions to, um, for you to take into further reflection and journaling, into prayer, uh, to maybe take this topic a little bit further, a little bit deeper for yourself if you, if you would like to. Um, some of those questions have to do with... Um, what do you believe the divine purpose is that God is working out in your life through the circumstance that you're facing? In your life experience, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, um, what, how is that affecting your own identity? And is God only good when he does things my way? What does repentance have to do with that? And a couple of other questions there. What does it mean to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us in Hebrews chapter 12, 1? To run the race of endurance. But what does that have to do with conflict and relationships? So these questions will just help you take the concepts that were delivered this evening just a little bit deeper, a little bit more personal um, into your own Bible study time. So let's just pray um, as we close, all right? Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, uh, for this time together and for your word and for, your, for the truths that you set before us, Father. We do desire to glorify you, Lord, in, in the difficult circumstances that we encounter, Father. We know that the difficulties we experience are an opportunity, Lord, for our faith to grow. And we, we choose this day, Lord, not to shy away from those opportunities for our faith to grow, Father, to to recognize that trials are, are a, a part of your um, instruction for us in this world. There is a divine purpose. And Lord, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to run. Father, help us not to run from the fear. Run, run in fear because we're so afraid of pain. I pray, Father, that each of us would lean into you and, and trust you more as we deal with difficult circumstances in our lives, heartbreaking experiences, but, but Father, that we would trust you more in the midst of it, and we would, we would see opportunities in the midst of it, and that we would see the veils drop from your face and see you more and more as you are. What a privilege, Father, for us to think about difficult circumstances and pain and even conflict in our lives in this way. Help us to glorify you in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.